underwear. Isn't it beautiful? It's like a dream come true. It's the dawning of the age of lovely, intimate things. Welcome to episode 20 of I Think I Like This Movie, America's Least Necessary Film Criticism Podcast. This week, we get lost in the childlike imagination of Terry Gilliam with 1988's The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, starring John Neville, Eric Idle, and Sarah Polly, with bit roles from Uma Thurman, Robin Williams, and Sting. And we welcome in our guest who brought us this film, actress and fellow podcaster Ellen Adair. So... Follow along as we join the extremely horny Baron himself and his geriatric fantastic foursome in saving the town from the invading Turks. Ellen, have you ever put your own head on the line for all the treasure one man could carry? I I have not. No, I haven't. But I mean, I don't know if I have put my head on the line right now because I uh, I don't know how you feel about this movie uh, or that I have chosen it for you to discuss this week. <laughs> well, that's why we're here. <laughs> uh, that is that is why we do this. So let's let's get right into uh, why. Why did you think that you liked this movie? And give us a little bit of your background with it. Do you remember the first time you saw it, who you were with, what the venue was? Kind of set the scene for us. That would imply that I have a far better memory than I do, which I don't. I have a really quite poor long-term memory. Um, But I know that I saw this film in the last millennium. I was a child. Um, It would have been some significant time after the movie came out. And I think I saw it on VHS, therefore. And I, I... I have a feeling like I probably saw this at a neighbor's house. I grew up without a television. So like that was the option if I wasn't going to see something in the theater. And it's possible that I only saw it once, but it also, it made enough of an impression on me that I think I may have seen it twice. I don't know, but I don't think they owned that movie. So I'm now going to give you a window into exactly how my memory works. Here's what I remembered about this movie. Number one, that I liked it. Uh, Number two, the moment when Berthold, who can run incredibly quickly, played by Eric Idle, is running very swiftly over the hills, sort of like a Roadrunner cartoon. And uh, three, the moment when Baron Munchausen arrives on the moon and they're moving through all of these flat buildings that kind of like advance and recede. And then it's as if they pass through the center of town and the cheering dims and they're trapped amongst the flats of the buildings. I remembered just that moment. And then the moment when Vulcan squeezes a rock down into a diamond and Venus receives it and one of her ladies just throws it into the pile with all the other diamonds. That's what I remember of the movie. But mostly I remember that I really, really liked it. Like whether or not I like something is often the only thing that I will retain about a book or a movie, um, even one that I have seen this millennium. I guess to properly answer your question, I think I liked it because it was beautiful and fantastical. And what else did I love more as a child and as a grown, reportedly grown person? Yeah, I mean, that was a lot of the like visual kind of like not just gags, but, you know, I mean, the Eric Idle thing's kind of a gag, but but also like the, just the, the sets were, I, I don't know that I can really, like they were evocative of some things I've seen before, but they kind of were not in other ways. There was stuff that I just, I don't ever remember quite seeing things put together like this, uh, this sort of mix of this 
they kind of introduce it as like a stage play, right? And it's it's like this elaborate stage setup, but then they it just keeps evolving and in into more and more elaborate kind of uh uh visual backdrops and 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 you know throughout the rest of the film when when they're away from the stage when they're just in in the world um that was definitely the the thing that's maybe the most sort of striking about it uh will what uh what was your background with this movie did you did you had you seen this before and what do you remember i had seen this exactly one time before this and i believe it was at my grandmother's house and the only reason that this would have been put on is because it was rated pg So it was, I would come home from Catholic school and hang out at grandma's until my mom got done with work and I was allowed to watch things that were rated PG. But I don't think any of the parents actually watched this with me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, they just put it on. And at one point I was like, oh, those are definitely breasts. I should probably not be saying this, you know, that kind of thing immediately. Yeah, um, there, there, there's a few layers of that that we'll get into. Uh, but, but what I remembered and what came out the most on rewatch was that this, does very much look, look like one of the Terry Gilliam animated sections from a Monty Python episode, just with a massive budget. Right. Yeah. Sort of brought to life. Very surreal. Very colorful. Yep. And we'll talk about the budget and everything too, because there's a lot there. Uh, but before we get into all any more details and any more off track, uh, Ellen, you are our guest. It is therefore your duty uh, off the top to try to summarize this film, the oh, plot boy. of this film. Uh I really, I, I, you, you work in the business, as they say. Uh, so you, you understand uh, probably a little better than some of our other guests do. Just like sticking to the plot, try to try to just like hammer between a log line and a paragraph. Just what happened in this movie? So, oh no! Now you've set me up to do a great job. This is definitely going to be more than a log line. This doesn't count, by the way. This isn't part of the plot recap. So there's a a truly late 18th, early 19th century style framing device for the whole movie, which is part of its brilliance. So there is this European city that is under siege from the Turks. And the city and the war are being overseen by a man called Horatio Jackson, who believes strictly in reason and logic. And in this shelled city, an acting troupe is staging a production of the stories of Baron Munchausen, but it is then interrupted by the actual Baron Munchausen, upset with the way that his life is being portrayed on the stage. And he retells a story and we sort of, we flash back in time to see the story as he narrates it. And after that, we see the young daughter of the principal actor and owner of the acting company. Now, stay in here or I shall lock you up. Where's my brother? What? You haven't got a brother. Can you just tell me why it says Henry Salt and Fun on your daughter? I should never have taught you to read. She's sort of pleased with the Baron to save the city. Go away! I'm trying to die. And eventually he agrees. And then the entire rest of the movie is comprised of their various exploits as the Baron tries to round up his old fantastical crew, um, which is a very a man who can run very fast, a man who can see very well, a man who can hear extraordinarily well and also uh, blow people down by uh, 
with his breath and then an incredibly strong man. And so eventually at the end of the movie, they do take on the, the uh, Ottoman army at the gates. And there's more that sort of bookends the movie that we'll maybe get to later. But that's the broad strokes. Will, any, any additions to that? No, it's, it's very much like a fantastical version of the Blues Brothers getting the band back together. So it's, <laughs> that's, that's kind of the whole, that's the whole thing. Totally. Yeah, and it jumps in and out of like, because we'll get to like plot hole continuity or stuff later, but there's stuff where it just, oh, actually, this wasn't the plot. We're back. It's part of the stage retelling. It sort of jumps back and forth between what we're telling the story of what's happening and what's actually happening. And uh, that definitely on, on a first watch this afternoon was a little confusing <laughs> as it was happening. Um, but to, to your point, I mean, we have these sort of fantastical uh, characters um, in this age uh, where we are inundated with these in 2021. Is this a superhero movie? I think it is. I think it's like 100% the Avengers for the 18th century. But I think both the Avengers and the and this are sort of built on the folktale type of like the assemblage of heroes. You know, my father is a folklorist. So like, I think that's just why it's like the water that I swim in. And when I was a child, he would tell me stories on long cross country bus trips in Turkey, uh, which I just called Turkish bus stories that were always basically me assembling heroes, usually fictional characters, but also Charles Barkley was usually involved in order to vanquish. It was usually like Newt Gingrich or the, the injury lawyer in our town who took out all kinds of ridiculous advertisements everywhere. Um, so yes, like this is as a general folktale type, I'm very familiar with. Uh, I, one, I think future generations will assume that Charles Barkley was a fictional character when they learn about him. <laughs> I think that's fair. Yes. Uh, two, w w were you ever uh, attacked by cannon fire uh, from the Turks in these Turkish stories? No, I was not. No, the Turks were our friends. Oh, all right. <laughs> yes. Yes. So let's let's get into some some of the sort of pieces of this movie. There's there's so much that I kind of want want to break down. Um, but I'll, I'll just sort of start it off with with the characters. The the characters are all, you know, over the top. I mean, that's sort of part of part of the, the whole presentation of this. Going back and, and watching this again, was there a character that that you maybe didn't remember as much that that stood out more this time that you appreciated more this time? And was there one that maybe you thought was better before that didn't age as well? Well, to answer your first question, I mean, there's obviously, I already rehearsed for you what I remembered about this movie. So I forgot so much about it. So I feel like it might be either Roger, as he's called in the film, or Ray Di Tutto, uh, the King of the Moon, as it wasn't until I saw him that down the long corridors of my memory, I was like, oh, Robin Williams is in this movie. And I didn't remember anything about his character um, since he wasn't part of those like three specific memories. And I think, I mean, obviously I'm not sure if I, I would like the King of the Moon if I met him, but looking at it from a sort of character construction point of view, the whole spiritual philosophical commentary of, of the characters of the King and Queen of the Moon, um, in which if you have not seen this movie, gentle listener, the, the head 
their heads are not necessarily connected to from their to their bodies they the heads are sort of like able to break free and like the heads just want to be able to spend all day being creative and contemplating the order of the universe and and it keeps getting waylaid by like the gross physical desires of the body and i don't think that this is something that i understood to the same degree when i was like whatever seven or eight and i saw this movie and i don't just mean the sexual aspect i, I think it's just when i was eight i didn't have the same understanding that i do now of like the finite nature of the time in our lives and so the way it's just so annoying when the body keeps being like tired or hungry or sick or distractingly cold like bodies are just so annoying um it's just they're the only only way that we get to do anything. So yeah, like I feel you moon people. And in terms of, I mean, again, I remembered so little of it, but I think something that probably even occurred to me when I was a child and watching this is that like, I don't 100% love that it's a story about fighting the bad guys, the Turks. Um, but of course, this is based on the actual Baron Munchausen's life fighting the Ottomans. So there's a sort of fictionalization of the tall tales that he would tell about his own story, but the actual Baron Munchausen was fighting the Ottomans, so I can't argue with that. And I do think that Gilliam views Horatio Jackson as the main antagonist and and that like all of the absurdist treatment of the sultan's character in the baron's retelling of that story with the bottle of toke and uh his sort of wager about whether or not he would get beheaded i think that sort of meant like it's through the baron's white christian european lens so it's sort of like a farce of the idea yeah i don't know did I answer your question? A little bit. Uh, <laughs> Will, did you have uh, characters that, that stood out uh, in good or bad ways this time around? I was actually really impressed with how self-possessed uh, Sally Salt is in this and how frequently she's the one trying to corral the Baron into actually doing what he set out to do. Yeah. The Baron himself kind of wore on me after a while. Yeah. <laughs> just his his shtick. Just, I was like, oh, it's like the same thing, like kind of over and over and over again. I, I think I appreciated uh, uh, Jonathan Pryor, uh, our, our, our essentially uh, antagonist, doing sort of a, like a subdued like Doctor Strange love, like like his his whole his whole thing was this was it's like just the first thing I thought of. It wasn't as like over the top, but it it was kind of like that same you know very like like rigid and you know shades of like like even though it's supposed to be like the age of reason like shades of uh, uh fascism and all that kind of, yeah, kind the of random german accent going on right there. right right there's it just it just reminded me of peter sellers uh, yeah yeah in a good way so wonderful he's um, so i love jonathan price I just everything that he does is is genius unfortunately he sadly looks sort of like wordsworth to me in this movie which, <laughs> yeah. don't um, be fascist wordsworth well, well i want to get back to the like the age of reason stuff because that i'm not world history is not my my strongest uh <laughs> like ancient world history especially what what was there some larger thing that you were aware of in terms of like why like what what the message was supposed to be Terry Gilliam sort of writing and making fun of uh, this sort of like age of reason and 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 placing it in this context of of like this sort of hapless elected official who's doing all these you know issuing all these decrees and and not actually progressing mankind you know in any intellectual way 
Yeah, I mean, to me, I feel like one of the main themes of the movie is just bureaucracy and small-minded adherence to... I mean, logic almost isn't pejorative enough for the way that I think Gilliam views it versus the idea of imagination and storytelling. And so obviously his true antagonist is going to be somebody who really doesn't believe in the power of storytelling or in the power of anything imaginative or even in the power of somebody in the example of uh, Sting, our heroic officer at the beginning, whom he commands uh, killed because he has done something in the real world, not, you know, not a story that he thinks will be too inspiring to other people. <laughs> so he really just, he wants people to be unexceptional and unostentatious. And obviously, if you're Terry Gilliam, this person is the enemy. Like, if you just think about what Terry Gilliam's imagination is, it's insane. I don't have anything like a Terry Gilliam uh, imagination. And so, of course, he feels like it's always the bureaucrats who are trying to bring him down. I don't think I have a perfect understanding of this. I think I mostly have an understanding of sort of like the age of reason giving way to, uh, thank God, the age of romanticism through kind of knowledge of English literature. But yes, in the sort of like mid late 18th century, you've got a lot of like Alexander Pope, like whatever is, is right. And then reactionarily, if that's even a word that I'm allowed to use as a former English major, out of that, that's where we get Wordsworth and we get Byron and Shelley and Keats and and everything being about feeling and imagination and spontaneity and spirit. So I think that in terms of setting it in this time, partly it's set in this time because that's when Baron Munchausen was actually alive. That's when the stories are from. But it also, I think, makes sense in a historical context for this to be the moment when when this perhaps awakening is happening. And to I wonder, your point. I'm sorry, I was gonna say, I wonder if it was almost the other way around. I wonder, I wonder if he picked the time period and then went searching for the protagonist that, that fit in, into the time period, as opposed to, you know, it just happens to be in this time where, where he can make this sort of grand philosophical statement. I don't know. I do know that, and I haven't seen Time Bandits, um, sadly, but I I feel like I'm going to go back and, and watch it now. I know that this was part of his trilogy of imagination. Um, this is all research that I did this week in preparation for this podcast, so it's not something I knew previously, um, where there's one is focused on uh, like a young person, a child, one is focused on somebody as an adult, of course, also a friend, Jonathan Price in Brazil, and uh, which I also saw when I was a child, and I just don't remember anything about it. Like, so that's why I didn't pick it for this. Um, and then this is about uh, an older person. And so I think it's partly that there aren't, uh, there aren't a ton of older protagonists that you could pick. And uh, I mean, it's also totally possible that, that he, that Gilliam thought that this was a really interesting time period as well to tell the story. I think it's a good point. I did want to mention that to the point of imagination versus the, the stuck up uh, bureaucracy that Jonathan Price represents, his actual name in the movie is the, uh, what is it, the right ordinary Horatio. 
Yes, rather than like the right honorable, the right ordinary right Horatio Jackson, because what greater praise could we heap upon a human being than that they are utterly ordinary? Well, you mentioned uh, this is part of a sort of an informal trilogy uh, that follows the Monty Python years, uh, the stuff that was made in the 80s. One of the things we like to do is to, to look at a, a film from that, from whatever time period it was made in and see if there's anything about the way that it's made that really reflects upon that time period as opposed to the time period where it's set. So is what stood out to you as being, you know, aspects of this film that really pegged it as having been made in 1988? Well, I mean, honestly, watching it, I felt like a lot of it's a like timeless, uh, perhaps being set in the 18th century. And there's not actually a lot of like, oh, those that person's hairstyle is straight up from 1988. But I think the most maybe indicative of time and era is the fact that it's all practical effects. Um, to me, that makes it intensely more lovable um, because there's something even about the angel of death being real, being a real thing that makes it, I don't know, sort of more powerful. Like if you saw an actual spindle of weirdly connected bones with the skull head and tenuously attached wings like it would be scary and 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 the wonkiness of the of the moon king's three-headed vulture leopard creature that has mechanical insides was like creepy if it were real um but i also think this film that's very much about theater and theater magic and so looking back on it whatever 30 plus years ago, it all feels very meta and appropriate that it's, it's a story that is also about things being meta. It's this sort of like feedback loop of form and artistry. So I'm also kind of tempted to say, uh, I think just because I hadn't seen this movie since the 90s, like that this aesthetic and the aesthetic of melancholy and the infinite sadness. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's probably just because like I saw this movie closer to when that album came out and they're probably just both both like independently drawing on on uh, what is it George Melier's A Trip yeah. to the Moon. Yeah. So that's probably just my brain and coincidental. Well, I'm sure the Smashing Pumpkins grew up watching this, you know, <laughs> I mean, it was yeah. it's the right they era. They probably of, watched of this time. and were like, this movie is awesome. <laughs> Will, what would stood out to you very much uh, that placed this in 1988? From a purely technical standpoint, the fact that they were using blue screen instead of green screen. Interesting. We don't, we don't do that anymore when we make movies. Yeah. Because you can see little bits of blue behind, I think it's Eric Idle's puffy white hair. And you can see a slight oh. blue outline around um, the Baron when they're coming down from the moon, when they're taking the uh, Rapunzel hair from that the, uh, the moon queen gave them. And they're just sort of like doing this Looney Tunes, cut off the top and stick it to the bottom and it'll be fine. Until we realize right. that Until it's not fine. Exactly. And then we'll fall. The yeah. right. coyote logic. Yep. Uh, Jones. Um, yeah, you see this weird funky blue outline that I was immediately thrown off by it not being slightly green. Yeah, I was gonna say like, like sort of 
broadly contextually within like the movie industry, just the fact that this was PG uh, <laughs> and, and maybe Will talked about it a little bit off the top, but like the movie opens on just explosions and just like a loud violence, like for like a, for a kid's sensibly a kid's movie. And there's torture and there's nudity or like almost nudity, like past what you expect out of a PG movie. And it's just like highly sexualized throughout the entire thing. And Very I think, horny movie. Yeah. And like everyone's horny. So many people are horny in this movie. Like I mean, that's, that's part of the thing that like, like the, the broad, the way that just like sex is just like thrown into so many scenes. Uh, and then I think for me that <laughs> this isn't necessarily peg it to 1988, but pegs it to sometime not quite modern, which is the vast age gulf between our romantic characters. So Oliver Reed uh, was born in 1938, which makes him 32 years older than Uma Thurman. And John Neville is 45 years older than Uma Thurman, who, at the most generous possible time frame of when this was shot, was 18. Because she was born, yeah, she was born in 1970. This film came out. It came out stateside in 89, but it was released in 1988. So depending on when it was shot, I mean, she was. I'm sure she was 16 or 17. Yeah. I'm, I mean, right. I'm confident that that is the case. Yes. Based on based on how long it took them to, to do this and all like, the budget overruns and everything. I mean, like there's every reason to believe that she was under 18 and that was, you know, she was on display for the camera, for the men in the, in the film. I mean, it was very, very as a big part of, of sort of the presentation of the movie, which just would not fly today. Uh, oh, no. I mean, I think also uh, in England, in terms of sort of like being considered an adult for working, I think 16 is the age. Do you know what I mean? So like now, um, for example, it's very important for films to get people for the if at all possible, to get 18-year-olds to play younger. But in England at the time, it was sort of like 16-year-old, I think was the... I don't know if that's still the case, but it's still a 16-year-old. Right. And <laughs> doing she's that thing. Yes. dancing and kissing a, a, a man in his 60s. I mean, like, yeah. you know, it was basically... I think he was, he was in his early, mid-60s. And that's, that's not played for anything like, I mean, it's just played straightforward. Like this is a normal a thing. Yeah. Well, she's yeah, the but... goddess of love. So she's, you know. Yeah, I, mean... <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, and and just like, I mean, I think this was fairly soft. Uh, like they, they did, they did a good job in a couple of spots of taking something where they they made kind of a sexual joke and then made it more innocent, which I- Oh, like the tickling? The it's tickling, so good. And and the and the underwear for the hot air balloon were the two that, that really stood out to me. Um, I, I I really I really liked the Eric Idol, the the look at all that underwear. It's a dream come true. This <laughs> is such a ridiculous quote. <laughs> that like that's that's exciting to him for some reason to see it all stitched into a hot air balloon. Yeah, when I think he also says something like, you know, this is this is the dawning of the age of like sweet sensitive things or something like that yeah i can't remember exactly what it is but that for him it's not only wonderful but it is like a harbinger of just 
in, I don't know, more. Sexy underpants? Yeah, well, just everything that's good is like going to start coming into the world now. Yeah, which I don't know. It's not wholly inaccurate, but I'm a big fan of the romantic poets, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah. The, I love the tickling the feet moment. Um, I, I particularly love that it's very clear. And I feel like maybe even when I was a child, when John Neville has the line and he says, oh, yes, the, well, the, you know, the moon king is um, tickling her feet, that it's a euphemism. But then to go to the scene and find out that that's actually what he's doing, that he's actually taking her, tickling her feet, it's intensely satisfying. Yeah. It, it, and also just like, Man, it's been a long time since I've seen just sort of unleashed Robin Williams in a movie where he's just like allowed to do whatever he wants, you know, spitting fruit and just, I mean, he's, he's so over the top and like that character, I, I, I read something that, that he like flew in after, like they didn't have any money left to pay him. He just had to like, he like volunteered to just do the role. Cause they were like, he was already going to be in England or whatever. He like hopped off of a plane and just like, <laughs> they knocked it all out at once, which makes perfect sense. Like just that stream of consciousness, Robin Williams. I, but like my mom always used to tell me a story. She ran into him on the street in San Francisco. I grew up in the Bay area and, you know, he used to live in San Francisco and, and there's just a crowd of people around him and he was just being Robin Williams and everyone was just like dying laughing just on a street corner, you know, in the middle of a day. And, and like, that's just like exactly what, what he is. And it's like, like, I'm sure he had lines. Like there were clearly lines that were tied to the script, but you, you wonder how much of that was just like, yeah, we'll, we'll work it in. We'll work in whatever you say. We'll <laughs> I also it. feel pretty confident that a lot of that was just Robin Williams improv. Yeah. I love in that tickling scene where he says something like, oh, do you want to play head and seek? <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's an extreme. That has to be Robin Williams. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. It's right up his, his alley for sure. All right. Well, it's tough with it, with this film to identify plot holes because the plot intentionally is manipulated and jumps around so much that you can't really necessarily say that something's a plot hole. It's just kind of plot and it's the, the way it's, it's constructed. Um, but what did you notice uh, in terms of either plot holes or, or continuity errors or, or just, you know, production gaffes and stuff like that? Was, was, was there anything that kind of stood out to you? Uh, uh... I feel like I'd have to watch the movie several more times to find one, honestly. Um, and yes, it's because it's all sort of a tall tale. Um, but if I can perhaps just instead say like things, things I didn't notice originally, can I answer that part of yeah, the question? Sure. Can I Baron Munchausen this? Sure. Um, yeah. I, Cause I think I did not get a lot of the social commentary. It's definitely not done with a heavy hand and it's definitely part of the, of the storytelling. Um, but I don't think I understood the degree to which the Horatio Jackson character was orchestrating the war, like fundamentally keeping it going. Um, so, I mean, this is the opposite of a plot hole, but it's it struck me as very Orwellian. And the the fact that I think the very end, which we haven't really talked about, but what happens is Horatio Jackson kills Baron Munchausen, it's it's sort of like the Kennedy assassination a little bit in the way that it's set up because Baron is like going through the town on his horse. And then we discover that the Baron is just was just telling a story the whole time. And yet at the same time, somehow the Turks have also vanished or been vanquished. And it's like, uh, it's the film's moment of like, but wait, we all had the exact same dream. And I think that there are two ways to interpret the ending. 
And I haven't read any film criticism on this. I just receive it two ways personally. And I think that when I was a child, I just received the ending as like, it was actually true and like, yay, the power of storytelling. But now I was just sort of thinking there's also a way in which the war was just fabricated in order to keep the people subjugated, like a very like, you know, we're at war with Eurasia and we've always been war at war with Eurasia notion, like a kind of scare tactic of the kind that demagogues throughout history, including our own recent demagogue have used. So yeah, like this stuff is in this movie. And I don't think I got that when I was eight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, and that's, that's where, you know, I, I was thinking about my initial reactions to this. And it was like, well, it kind of is like Monty Python for kids, but then it's also not. I mean, it's all, there's also so many levels of all this other stuff that, that that's happening that, I, I mean, I guess, in a in a very different way <laughs> but the, the same way that like the shrek movies like you didn't if you're whatever age you are you get a completely different experience out of a shrek mm. movie because there's all this stuff that's like we're gonna make this just just sort of oblique enough that like the kids don't get it and then we're gonna have this other stuff that like you're only gonna get if you're a parent like i i just i the one thing i remember about watching i think it was it was either the second or third track in like the theaters when I was in college. I wasn't like super interested in going. And then in like the early like minutes, they reenact the OJ car chase. <laughs> there's, there's literally a helicopter shot and they're chasing a white Ford Bronco or you know, white Bronco. And like, it, there's, it, it just like, there's this, and it's, they spend five seconds on it and they're on to the next thing. But, uh, but like that, the appreciation that like, none of the children <laughs> knew what yep. was happening uh, and this this film is more serious it's not just like cultural references they're talking about large historical themes and 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 political themes but the same way that like right they don't expect an eight-year-old to get that but that's that's there for the parents right and that's there for for everybody else uh who's a little older and has a little more of a grounding in it uh to, to be able to pick that up yeah but will uh to, to sort of circle back here to uh plot holes continuity errors what what, what did you uh, pick out of this film uh, i had exactly the same interpretation of the ending the second time as an adult of yeah this is there to control the populace it's why jonathan price doesn't want the baron to open the doors because suddenly the people will see that it's all a ruse so i definitely appreciated that like a lot um on the second viewing but the problem with as you mentioned looking for plot holes is that this movie is by its very nature fantastical and while there is there is an internal logic to the movie. It's not a logic that we can really apply on a critical level like, in terms of plot holes. Right, right. So I can't, I honestly can't think of anything. Yeah, I, I, I saw just a couple of filmmaking technique things. There, Someone got caught in the back of a shot. There was one, there was like a, a guy who gets caught in a sweatshirt, you know, basically like in the, in the back of a shot. Oh uh, gosh, I did not notice that. And, and then, and then the, the one that really jumped out was in the middle of the, the sort of big final, you know, fight scene, uh, the sort of climactic battle, um, the, the horse, which, and this also goes back to the time and error references, just the, the usage of the horse was, pretty aggressive in a way that I don't think most studios would sign on to now, but there's this shot where the horse jumps over a line of soldiers. And as it's getting, as it's like coming up, there's like these dudes standing there and then they cut to, they do what they do a, a quick cut and cut back. And when they cut back and the horse is leaping over the soldiers, they're very clearly dummies. dummies. One, one of them is falling over like into the camera and it's just like this, this blank face. And it's, it's, it, just you know i get it like i understand like how they had to do it especially 
talking go back go back to the practical effects for everything but it was just it was just really funny like even on my not so big television i was like oh right <laughs> like that's, that's a dummy not, that's not a person <laughs> you know yeah i guess there are a couple of things like that in the movie there are there are a few instances where you can see sarah pauline visibly shaken by an explosion near her and i know she's gone and done interviews like in the years after saying that it was not a particularly safe film set so i don't know if you could really get away with that today yeah yeah, there, there's it seems probably like not. It, I hope not. <laughs> I well, even Eric Idle said that like there was some quote from him where he was like, he was like, I've always been good about following the, the rules uh, about uh Terry Gilliam movies, which is never be in a Terry Gilliam movie, go watch them, but never be in them because they're <laughs> a fucking mess. Like the whole thing is a huge mess. And like he was like, this was like the worst like mess I've ever worked on. Uh, which we like. It's funny to think about. I saw that like there was there were so many problems in the production the first day that they got like 32 seconds of footage out of the first day and like 40 seconds out of the second day. Uh, and, you know, and they were over budget. So you brought up the, the moon uh, scene in, in the beginning, the, the sort of entry scene in the beginning, um, which they I think pulled off really well, but they were they were broke. They had no more money to do what they wanted to do. And so they had to like do it on a little like stage it was all like it was like old school star wars sets and stuff basically to like create the effect for that because they were just like well we don't have any money so <laughs> we have to cut out cardboard and like do and this like a pop-up book yeah yeah no i works i actually i i read that this week as well and i i think it was they took gilliam's designs where he was like these are going to be the buildings and then yeah. they were like oh we can't make the buildings so these are gonna it's gonna be these and it's so interesting to me that one of the things that was the most visually impactful for me and even now as i watched it again i love it was like a, you know, quote unquote mistake. And I think what's really great about this movie is that I think any number of people would say, oh, well, then I guess we'll just have to cut it. But he was like, no, we're going to find a way. I think it is helpful that there is so much about the movie that is fantastical that you can just be like, I don't know, maybe the buildings on the moon are just two dimensional. And also it's all sort of like a play and like a story. So we can just get away with those kinds of um, meta theatrical settings. But yeah, like I still, I don't know, there's something, uh, it hit me, it hits me way down deep in my psyche. I don't know if that's because as an actor, I, you know, when I, when I'm lucky enough to do a play, it's been a few years. I mean, I'm lucky to do a lot of TV and film. I'm not complaining, but like, you're always dealing with a world that is flat, that is like, not actually not completely real, but you're having to endow it with complete reality. So I think perhaps that moment stuck with me because every time I'm dealing with a flat in a play, I'm like reminded of it somehow. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm talking way too much about this moment, but I think it's really great. Like, I think it's fantastic art and the fact that he made that lemonade out of those lemons. Ah, Terry Gilliam. Well, and it, it, do it. I mean, it, it looks like a, like an old Western set, right? I mean, it looks like like the old town set where we're really like, like you like know that it's a fake storefront, you know, if you've right, seen right, Westerns. Right. And like it had that that sort of look to it. That's the first thing that I thought of just visually when I saw it is like, is like, oh, the moon is like literally like a like a fake pop up town in, in what's the canyon in Arizona where they where they film all the all the uh, Mon Monument Valley where they film all like all the, all the Westerns. Like it's like what it looks like, basically, you know, except 
a little a little less red and a little more gray in, in the dirt you know around it i think that's a great touch point because actually it should have that same kind of menace of like you're rolling into town and you think everything's going to be okay but it's not going to be okay so yeah storytelling wise spot on We're back with Ellen Adair. Uh, Ellen, uh, I know you host a podcast uh, in, in addition to your your other things. Uh, what, you want to tell us about uh, what you've got going on right now? Yes. So uh, my husband, Eric, and I have a podcast called Take Me Into the Ball Game, where we grade baseball movies on the 20 to 80 scouting scale used for baseball prospects as God intended. And we have a really fantastic time. We have all kinds of, you know, ridiculous different categories. Obviously, we talk about storytelling. I always love the baseball accuracy tool, but we also have like delightfulness of catcher character and lack of misogyny and all kinds of things that uh, that you didn't even know you wanted us to talk about in terms of baseball movies. So we have a great silly time. I'm, I'm curious to know which movie you have had so far that you consider to be the most baseball accurate a sugar interesting yes i i i we've i think i've even talked about it on on this uh, podcast i've certainly talked about it with friends before when i i when they ask me for for movie recommendations and, and baseball recommendations as someone who has worked in baseball and around baseball for most of my professional life um and i always say that bull Durham is is my favorite sports movie and and the one i'll always return to because I worked in the minors and it has, it's realistic in certain senses, even though it's not like, even though it's kind of romantic and kind of over the top, there are ways in which it is more realistic than almost every other movie. And then I always say, and if you want the other side of the experience that you've got sugar, which is, you know, a a completely different kind of, of story, but uh, offers a a window that, that, you know, you just don't see uh, in terms of the way that baseball is presented publicly very often. Yeah, I think it's a spectacular film. I almost feel like it's not a baseball film. I almost think it's like an immigrant story, but I think it is just like impeccably done. And I don't know, I think I too have sort of like sentimental favorite baseball movies. One of them is Bull Durham. Um, I also like, for me, the one that like I return to in every season is A League of Their Own. Um, But I think that Sugar is the best. I think it is the sort of as objectively as possible, it is the best. I also wanna say on the subject of baseball accuracy, this upcoming week for us, and right now while we're talking, we're going to be releasing an episode on Little Big League. And I just want to say surprisingly good baseball accuracy in Little Big League. Yep. Yeah, that's uh, that is something that I had forgotten about. And someone was was telling me and I was confusing my brain Little Big League and Work of the Year, which I think a lot of people do oh, yes. because they came out around <laughs> the same time. Uh, but but right. It, it, yeah, it actually is, uh, which which I, I appreciate, especially for, you know, ostensibly kids films like that. They don't they don't try to make it cute and and they don't lose the thread in 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 presenting in a certain way like no like present it how it is you can right. you, there's so much to work with there you can take it any number of directions but yeah yeah definitely yeah um, i i i will make so bold as to say i think that little big league is my favorite young adult baseball movie which i 
realize is uh, perhaps going to be controversial, but I think that our episode on it is really good. So if somebody hasn't listened to our episode before, I would recommend checking out our Little Big League episode. All right. Uh, well, let's uh, let's get get back into things. Uh, I will just get my self indulgence out of the way uh, that we do every week on this podcast, uh, which is Gaucho Watch, uh, where I try to find somebody uh, connected to the film who is also connected to my alma mater, the University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, which happens a lot. Uh, there wasn't a direct one, but of course, this is the Monty Python comedy troupe, and John Cleese is a longtime resident of Santa Barbara. He no longer lives there, but was, and uh, lived there while I was in college and was a frequent uh, celebrity sighting downtown for basically everybody because he was always down there and always drawing crowds. So that's as close as we're going to get this week. Uh, I forgot to watch. It's pretty good though. All right. As much as, as you, as you noticed it, what did you notice about the soundtrack uh, as, as you were watching? What would, did anything stand out to you about uh, the way that sound and music, especially were, were used in this film? Michael Kamen, who's perhaps most famous to me for the score to another childhood classic, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, uh, does the music here. And I think it's really great. And I can't say that there's one single ultra memorable theme, um, but it's excellent throughout. Particularly, I liked it sort of incorporating 18th century flourishes. I feel like some of my favorite music is maybe in the early section when they go when there's sort of like they travel back in time to the story of the wager with the Sultan. I think that might be some of my favorite uh, music. Of course, I am not referring here to the opera that the Sultan has written, that he plays on a kind of an organ that has spheres and things part. that go in and stick tortured prisoners to have them scream in time with music. It's so, it's so Monty Python. Yeah, like it's so out, yeah. Monty Python grotesque. Yeah. Yes. It's written by Eric Idle. The, 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 the actual song is written by Eric Idle. Oh, really? Idol. That's yeah. hilarious. I didn't Which, know that. Yeah. Of course. You know, like, yeah. yeah. Right. It, yeah. It might be the most like Monty Python bit of the entire film. Act four is set in an abattoir. I, I see a lot of slapstick. We begin with the arrival of the eunuchs chorus who sing, cut off in my prime, mine hertz, mine hertz. Yes, and I think also it's very Monty Python when the... Uh, when the treasurer has his head lopped off and it lands in the woman's lap and then he winks like a winking decapitated head pure monty python yeah uh speaking of decapitated heads uh one little bit that, that i just appreciated was that the sultan has a piece of furniture that would fit in i don't know a modern new york city apartment perhaps that is just a hand to catch the head after it after the executioner lops it off uh and you see it a few times they, they made sure to bring it back uh they obviously paid money to have that <laughs> that piece of furniture there and wanted to make sure that they got it in several shots throughout the film yeah they I'm brought sure, everybody sure back it's really into that piece of furniture <laughs> they brought uh, back the executioner with his eyes that are sewn shut and yeah. the and the assistant and somehow magically they too have not aged <laughs> or they have not aged while everybody else has. I don't did know. You, did you notice that the assistant has like a flap of skin where he keeps like a pen? That he I did not notice that. No, I didn't see that. I, I noticed it the second time the assistant showed up and I, I had stopped for a second and just went, that's disgusting. <laughs> I did notice the marking. I like when he draws the little dotted line on his neck. I think that's very, a good touch. <laughs> yeah. Which, of course, he, his eyes are sound shut. So you 
he's, yes. he's not looking at anything anyway, yep. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, classic uh, bureaucracy is probably right. Terry Gilliam's point of view. Right. Uh, Will any anything soundtrack wise uh, stick out to you? I thought the opening was really great and bombastic. Anytime there's an action scene, it's really intensely bombastic. And the score on the moon is very strange. Anytime King and Queen of the Moon are on screen, it's just some funky stuff going on. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, orchestral score has has the, the big flourishes. And, and I think to your point, Ellen, you know, it, it had some... I'm not a not a classical music, uh, an avid classical music listener, but I listened to a lot of it growing up. I was in a boys' choir growing up. It was kind of part of, you know, I, Very there, cool. there was stuff that was of that. You could tell it was kind of meant to be of of that that style of the time. Like it, like it did, it did feel in a way like it didn't feel like modern classical or 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 it, you know, it, it 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 was evocative in the right way to where you're like, yeah, sure, this sets the scene, like you know, uh, auditorily for you, so. Mm-hmm. The um, age of reason Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I this is probably my, my favorite question that we ask people, although I don't know, I don't even know how to approach it for, for this film, which is what has happened to each of these characters in the world in the intervening time, uh, like up to present day. Now, obviously this film did not take place in the year in which it was made. So that takes some of it out. It's not like we're just talking about 30 some odd years or whatever but like what what happened after the the credits rolled and like what happened to, to this world uh after after the story that we see so i feel like this question is either the easiest or the hardest because in the present day everyone is clearly dead uh unless it's like Baron Munchausen is like Santa Claus. And so you're like, oh, the spirit of Baron Munchausen is in all of us when we tell an imaginative story. Um, So here's what I'm going to do instead, because I think that this answers the spirit of your question, if not your literal question. So the (laughs) question that I am going to answer instead, I'm totally Baron Munchausen this, is what would these characters be doing if they were living today in the United States? Baron Munchausen, former film star, uh, would be acting occasionally, but mostly writing Marvel movies. We talked about the, uh, obviously this movie is the 18th century Avengers. Um, so he's that, John, he's John Favreau. Um, I mean, I think he was more of an action movie star previously, but I think that's not a bad touch point. Yes. Um, uh, Sally Salt. Uh, who is, of course, the well-known daughter of Emmy winner Henry Salt, is currently a series regular on an hour-long drama on CBS, uh, but she uses her social media presence to raise awareness about climate change. And uh, Bertold, who, of course, can run very fast, cleaned up in eight straight Olympics, dominating the marathon, the 1,500, 5,000, and 10,000-meter events, the shorter events, he like takes too long to kind of speed up before he starts running. Um, he was obviously uh, strenuously drug tested and uh, was disqualified for his 10th Olympic Games when traces of THC came back in the drug test. Unfair. Uh, he now, he now <laughs> yes. Uh, he now owns a modest chain of furniture stores in the tri-state area with commercials that are bad enough to be charming. Uh, Adolphus, the uh, hero with excellent sight, is a successful high fashion designer with his own label. 
Uh, Albrecht, who is the uh, hero who's incredibly strong, has a small bakery that specializes in cupcakes, and he's also very active in the LGBTQ community. Uh, Gustavus, who has great hearing, uh, works for the CIA, uh, but he is frustrated that he doesn't get to do more undercover work. It's hard. He's a little person. They're like, you're going to stick out. He's like, yeah, but like I can hear everything anyway. Uh, Argos the dog is a good boy. The right honorable Horatio Jackson is a centrist Democratic senator for a Midwestern state, but he routinely fails to stand with the Democrats whenever it really matters or his vote could make a difference. I think the most controversial part about what you just said <laughs> is calling West Virginia a Midwestern state. <laughs> I was not. No, no, I don't. I don't. I I wasn't trying to pinpoint Manchin there, in particular. There, there are I no feel... centrist Midwestern Democrats, I don't think, in the Senate. I mean, like, how far how far west do we have to go? Before we... I feel like Missouri has failed on a number of occasions. I'm not naming well, names here. This is sure. this is a sort of a fiction, but right, like, yes. It, I mean, I also was trying to imagine Horatio Jackson being from West Virginia, and that seemed like maybe a stretch, but like I could see him being from Michigan, maybe, um, and disappointing the seems, good seems people like of Michigan. Guy. Seems and, like and an it, Arizona guy. Is that what you said? Yeah, I could yeah. see that too. Yeah. You know, you know what he seems like? He seems like that guy who ran as a Republican in Nevada and then moved to Texas and put on the Texas accent and is trying to run again in Texas. Like, would, like, like he's got, he's just putting on whatever accent he thinks he's, he needs to win, you know? Yes, actually, I could see that 100%. So he could try to convince the good people of West Virginia that he's from West Virginia anyway. Right. Uh, the Sultan is an owner of a large oil company, and he enjoys spending his time expanding his art collection and filming his own music videos. I don't know. Maybe that's a little obvious. Very obvious. Uh, Vulcan is developing new weapons for the military. Like, this isn't even different. That's what he's doing in that movie. Uh, Venus is a leading marine biologist uh, who has recently agreed to be in a documentary series about marine life in hopes of raising awareness about endangered species and her other favorite cause, which is encouraging women in STEM. And uh, the King of the Moon runs a multi-level marketing business selling moon dust, exfoliating scrubs and other moon-based products. Uh, the Head has its own vlog. And the queen of the moon divorced the king, and after briefly being romantically connected to Peter Sarsgaard, she settled down with one of the sirens of Titan, where she lives happily and is a novelist. Um, there are more characters, but that's as many as I did. <laughs> I... Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the, uh, uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm very happy that we're able to uh, talk about multi-level marketing again. With the, <laughs> we, we run a few episodes ahead, but the episode that we released the week that this is being recorded uh, involves a heavy multi-level marketing scheme that pops in. Oh, delightful. Okay. Um, yeah. I, 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 one thing that, that you reminded me of that, that I wanted to ask is when we see Vulcan, the introduction, like the introductory scene of with Vulcan in Mount Edna, is there a union strike happening? Yes. So much. This is also something that I'm confident I didn't understand when I was eight years old, but I love that they're like yelling, but they're yelling terms at each other. And um, a God, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yes. they're like, they're like we demand better wages. God. <laughs> He's like, I'm not going above 2.5% or what? yeah it's really great yeah there's so much social commentary it's so great yeah 
Um, Will, did you have any, any <laughs> you want to try to follow up? Do you want to actually no. answer the question? I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not even going to bother trying to follow that up. I mean, my thought was maybe Sally Salt rallies to town on the overthrow of the military organization. Yeah, it didn't seem like that was, uh, uh, the current leadership was going to hold uh, <laughs> after, oh, yeah. after the, the gates opened. I don't have a sense, like, is this England? Is this Spain? Like, what? historically do where is this town that i think it's not meant to be a particular place it it feels to me it feels like sort of continental uh and i don't know if that's partly because of uh jonathan price's accent but also like henry salt is such a very very english name i don't know i felt like it was kind of intentionally fantastical and not specific yeah maybe it's I like it just feels right. It just feels like maybe it's just because it's made by like Well, some... did you say any town Europe? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, That's exactly what it is. Yeah. I, I just I feel like I feel like probably that town gets overrun in the next five or ten years. <laughs> like by by some <laughs> by some marauding force. Like like I it may not quite line up historically, but it just it it feels like it's ripe to 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 just get like ransacked on the way to to the next you know whatever i I don't know i I think there might be not doing very well so (laughs) but i think there might be a few years of sort of uh socialist utopia that then is perhaps uh just completely smashed by somebody who comes through right right best case scenario um so this film uh its budget was forty six point six million dollars in nineteen eighty eight dollars, uh, and uh, went wildly over and had all sorts of of issues because they ran out of money. Uh, grossed eight million dollars in return. Uh, in light of that, in light of just sort of its general philosophy, uh, it, the way that it's put together, is this a movie that could get made again today? I mean, my first impulse is no, but then the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus was made about 10 years ago. So uh, granted that had a smaller budget. Um, But apropos of the budget, it seems like there's sort of, I don't know, a kind of a Rashomon situation about what actually happened with the budget. And what I read was, granted there's a version of the events that is like, yes, it was 46, whatever number you said, uh, that that was the budget. But it seems like one of the other producers, not Gilliam, um, was on the record as saying that they had a deal with Fox for a budget of around 35 million. And then the film was moved to Columbia, who would only budget at 25 million, um, partly because this was a deal made by a previous CEO who got fired and the new CEO was like, I don't care about your previous agreement, but they were already in pre-production for the movie. So reportedly, uh, Gilliam and the other producer deny that it was ever north of 40 million, that it was, it went over budget, slightly over budget of the 35 million that they were like, this is the budget that we need for this film. Um, and so, though it is a little bit like, I don't know who to believe, I think it's important to note that the studio did everything that they could to squash this film. They didn't publicize it. And they only printed a little over a hundred copies of the movie for openings. So this $40 million movie, at least, only opened on around a hundred screens, which is just bananas like for context if anybody doesn't know 
a wide release movie is like 3000 to 4000 screens. So there are art house films that get more than 100 screens. So I think that the studio is responsible for it being a box office flop. It might not have recouped its money, but they were never going to let it try. That's not the first film that's been on this podcast that has had a similar treatment. Oh, it's <laughs> uh, so tragic. We, we, uh, even what more, was the other movie? Well, so, well, a couple. So the, <laughs> for different reasons, but, uh, uh, freaked, which was, uh, episode 12, will American oh, psychotronic, yeah. uh, was, um, it, it was, basically same thing it moved from one studio to another whoever was championing it was fired or left and it came out it came out with fox and they put it on two screens oh my goodness (laughs) so it made like forty thousand dollars that's so tragic (laughs) yeah uh and then the the other one which uh was episode two uh <laughs> which was uh the tool that time forgot uh the the film is big trouble not big trouble in little china big trouble uh which was a 2002 but meant to be 2001 release uh a lighthearted comedy with a big wide cast uh about a, a, a bomb that ends up on an airplane that was supposed to come out in about mid-september of 2001 and for obvious reasons it did not and they'd blown all of their marketing budget and so it just got slipped out the back door of the studio the next april yeah uh, i remember this based on a dave barry novel it is that it was is. quite it's good, good. Um, yeah, but it's, yeah, I even though I liked the novel, I also didn't watch the movie, so I'm part of the problem. It's enjoyable. It's 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 like 86 minutes that you won't regret. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's it's per, it's perfectly uh, consumable. Holds up fairly well, all things considered, over 20 years. Uh, but right was basically memory hold <laughs> because of of that. So uh, yeah, that that does happen. Um, um, Practically, and just in terms of just getting back to to you know this is this, is this a movie that could, that could get made today, um, you know for me I mean I looked at it as like it kind of reminds me it's kind of like Pan's Labyrinth right I mean it's mm-hmm. it's like it's like a this sort of fantastic like child's point of view you know that's more monsters this is more you know uh, supernatural characters but but. I almost feel like it would take a director like that that has the cultural cachet to be able to be like, this is my pet project. I, I you know, will, will you, will somebody give me the money to do it? Like, I, I'm not sure if it gets done unless it has that kind of like person behind it, championing it. I don't know. I think, that, I think that, you could have a Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson might be able to get it done. Peter Jackson and Terry Gilliam probably would get along at least. <laughs> I could see that. I could see yeah. that for sure. Yeah, yeah I, I, there's like a handful of people out there probably who have the who have the studio sway to be like, this is my project. I, you know, whatever that is, seventy million dollars in today's money or something like that. Like maybe it's maybe it's slightly lower budget, but but you know, give me a substantial amount of money because I'm you know I need it to do this right. Yeah, I, I, I could I could see some people pulling it off, but probably probably takes it like that kind of uh, champion behind it. And let me say, whatever amount of money this film cost, you see it. You see it in the movie. Oh, You're not like, movie. where did the money go? You're like, oh my gosh, another set? Yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, any any loose ends, any any, any other things that, that we didn't get to, uh, things that, that you noticed you wanted to bring up, want to chat about, uh, things that you had questions about? I guess just really quickly, violence in PG movies in the 80s 
was way different than we think of PG these days. Yeah. Because when I was watching this, I was suddenly reminded of Raiders of the Lost Ark, mm. which was also PG, but had dudes getting shot in the head, you know, famously at the very end, Nazis explode, gory explosions too, which is delightful. But, <laughs> but I don't know if this would be PG or PG-13 today. Yeah, it, it feels like it would have to, I mean, maybe maybe the violence i the sexuality certainly i think pushes it to pg-13 yeah. um which the, is uh yeah again our society where it's like yeah i mean cut right. people's heads off but like no are we gonna <laughs> imply that like these people might, oh no like, a nipple. be into each other ah. yeah uh star wars was also pg uh all, all the original star wars movies i i'm, I'm pretty sure were, were, were pg and there's not as much blood but i mean there's a high body count in those movies oh, so yes. so i mean it's you know and and there isn't this one too like it's there it's not as like it's not as blatant of like this person just died but you're, you're like oh well that there were people there and now they're not there <laughs> you know like right, right, right. like like it's it's not it's not played up to be like where it's like a spectacle but but it it is it is very violent like and and there's a lot of a lot of of explosions what's that a lot of decapitations they're not bloody but he chops like six guys in top at the end (laughs) yeah 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 and i mean i think some of it is even in that very first sequence it's not violence but the danger of the world of that city is so clear there's like you know a person you just sort of see a bloody hand reaching up in the frame because i mean i think in some ways because so much of the so much of the violence that takes place within the framing of the story that baron munchausen is telling as we learn at the end has a sort of like we kind of know it's dummies element to it but there's something to me when i think about like what's actually the most upsetting i feel like it's the depiction of the war-torn town because that is more real yeah, yeah well, it, it's an interesting question though comparing that to like money python I, I just think about like bring out your dead where it's it, <laughs> like it's that's like it's grim but it's played just completely like completely oh, yeah. in a way that this isn't really no. I mean, this is this is meant to be serious which is interesting like contrasting like well is this a kid's movie like what's who is this for like who's uh you know your intended audience there um that it, it is more serious um I, I i just remembered something that i meant to bring up earlier which i just didn't it like it got glossed over and so then i forgot about it but like why did they go to the moon they were supposed to get reinforcements. I think he, that's he, where he said he last saw Eric Idle. Yes, yes. So, okay. he, so they're, they're, his whole campaign is I've got to rally my heroes. And he remembers that the moon is the last place that he saw Bertold. Got it. I must have missed that. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's not fruit for like more interesting discussion. No, that's all right. I'm, I'm glad to get the question answered. I, it, it was... It, it just because it kicked off sort of the whole like they end up in one place and they get spat out to the next place you know it, it's as, very as it convenient is. that he finds everybody else in the places yes. where he finds them because Imagine. those are all accidents <laughs> the moon is the only place that has a like oh this guy was there i should check out that place right then they get shot through the center of the earth into the ocean and swallowed by a giant whale where there are two more of them it's a monster like don't sure. badmouth whales by comparing them to that creature the, the island yeah. looking monster yeah. yes yeah yeah will did you have any other any other scraps any other notes 
Uh, no, the, the rating system thing was the big one. And, and actually, now that I think about it, I'm not entirely sure when PG-13 became a rating because it didn't used to exist. It's true. Oh. should look that up. Probably films like this <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. help spur that along. <laughs> there were some strongly worded letters written. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, I think that that brings us to the final question, the all-important question. Uh, Ellen, do you still like this movie? There may not be a lot of suspense here. Um, as I watch this movie again, not only did I completely understand why I liked this movie as a child, I was almost like, am I who I am because of this movie? And ultimately, I don't think so, because I think that there's a lot about my upbringing that just makes me the ideal target for this film. I am the daughter of an art historian and a folklorist. And so just the visual splendor of this film combined with its thematic elevation of imagination and storytelling. Like, how could I not love this movie? <laughs> I mean, just, you know, storytelling is the most important thing in the world to me. It's my favorite thing. And so the themes about the power of storytelling and the way in which fiction actually gets at the heart of truth and imagination vanquishes pragmatism. And like along the way, it's completely delightful and, and a visual feast. And also there are people fighting with swords at one point, which people fighting with swords is my favorite genre of film generally. So I am going to be so bold as to say, not only do I still like this movie, I think this is one of my favorite movies of all time. And maybe it's not everybody's cup of tea, but it is my tiny cup of tea, uh, just like they have uh, in sort of Vulcan and Venus's chamber. And it is my cup of tea made exactly how I like it. Uh, well, so going back, watching this again uh, for the second time, uh, final takeaways? I thought it was absolutely fantastic, and I wish it had more of a following than it currently does. And it was really a pleasure to rewatch it because I had totally forgotten how once you get over that it's inherently ridiculous, it's just great. It's great. <laughs> I, I grew up with two lawyers for parents, which is <laughs> very, very different. Uh, uh, I, I probably land more in the pragmatic stuff and, and plot holes tended to, to drive me nuts. But but oh, plot holes drive me crazy, too, because storytelling is very important to me. Right. Like we can be, be allied on this particular matter yeah. as as well as many others, I think. But I mean, yeah, if, if you lean into it, it's if you lean into understanding that the, the whole that's sort of the point the, the point is you can tell whatever story you want i mean that that's that's kind of how they how they present it um it took me a minute to get over that hump because i was like wait well, i don't know what's happening <laughs> for for a bit in the middle and then i was like oh that's that's what this is like that th that's the whole point that is the point you know like i'm trying i was getting caught on the on the like but 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 you you have to okay oh no 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 this this is the way you're intentionally doing this because that's the point like that that is but wait where did he get so much underwear so quickly <laughs> right. who has sewing machines how do... yeah yeah right yeah they, they 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 built that thing in a in between scenes <laughs> you know yes. uh yeah it, it's it's a it's definitely like it's it's still to your point about practical effects and we've talked about that with with uh other other films too um the appreciation i think it's almost like one of those 
uh, one of the things that that's like retro and is cool now again is like, oh, right. We're so used to seeing so much CGI and so much of it's so bad that like it's it's so refreshing to just like know that you're not watching CGI, know that you're actually seeing real things, even if they've been, you know, manipulated in, in, in a crazy way to look you know, fantastical. Um, yeah, yeah, I shot a movie last fall, a monster movie that uses entirely practical effects. And I'm Yay. very excited to see it. Yeah. Yeah. Because yes, the, the, um, the, the director was staunchly against CGI. He just thinks it doesn't have like, it doesn't have that same feeling to it. So well, there's no weight to CGI. Yeah. 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 It's like, it's not, it does not bodily exist. <laughs> so are you allowed to talk about that movie at all yet or is it um i i mean i can talk a little bit about it it's called cryptid it's a monster movie and it's about uh two reporters i play the photographer one of those two reporters who are sort of on the trail of this uh of the monster of the beast um well on that note uh thank you again so much for joining us uh where should people follow you uh on social media and whatnot uh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And you can find me on Instagram at Ellen Adair G or at Ellen Draws Baseball, where if you like, you can commission a drawing of a baseball player or like something else like your cat or like you and your spouse for your anniversary, whatever you want. I'll do it. And on Twitter, I am at Ellen underscore Adair. And make sure you're following us on Twitter and on Instagram at like this movie. And you can always jump into the conversation about any of the films using the hashtag ITILTM. It's hashtag ITILTM. And we will see you next week. I Think I Like This Movie is created by Noah Frank and hosted by Noah Frank and Will Vitka. Editing by Will Vitka. All music on the show, unless otherwise noted, provided courtesy of the South County All-Stars. Copyright 2021. Your crackers. I'm Baron Munchausen. Mm, that sounds nasty. Is it contagious?